This is uh, Paul Fischer of the Convergence Science Network talking to Bill Hansen. Bill organized a conference on evolution of olfaction. Uh, we happen to be on, uh, on Christmas Island. So Bill, why, why did you chose olfaction as, let's say, an entry point into the evolution of, of sensory systems? I think it's uh, a cool system. That's the first thing in general. And uh, I also think it's extremely important for many of the animals that we have chosen to work on. So I mainly work on insects and then they are very smell driven as far as I see it. And uh, this has made their olfactory sense evolve in a, in a different ways and, and we find different themes uh, both peripherally and centrally where they have where they have gone in different directions and uh, as I also mentioned in my talk that we also find these uh, systems that exploit the, the insect olfactory system in different ways and there we have like co-evolution going on which is uh, also very interesting how how exquisite uh, one system can exploit another one to to dupe uh, other organisms to do what what they want them to do. Right, but now you're so you're jumping ahead a bit, right? Because in your talk, <clears throat> you made this point that actually the way we look at olfactory systems has sort of changed. That that um, we have initially taken more this view of okay, let, let's just look at these receptors and let's see what they tell us about the world. Uh, let's see what they tell us about the stimuli that we're processing, and now this this whole process seems to have reversed, if you want. So can you can you say something about this this change? Yeah, that, that there was also a little bit about the methodologies that we use. So we have we we started off with having a lot of we knew something about the olfactory system, but not very much. So what we knew was more or less that we could we could uh, record a signal and we could use this signal to tell us something about what insects or other organisms smell. So that, therefore we used the, the system as such to, to as a detector for interesting odors and we used it to identify the odors and this way we could see for instance how how have pheromone systems evolved and then we could identify what one moth smells and then the closely related moth smells and the less closely related moth smells and we could draw phylogenetic and evolutionary conclusions. Now I think it during the last decade this has turned around a bit so now we we know a lot of the natural things that insects and other organisms detect and now we use that to probe the olfactory system so we we take the reverse entry in so we go in from the chemicals where we know that for instance a fruit fly likes a certain substrate okay then we can use that substrate by using uh, state-of-the-art chemistry we can identify what these compounds are and then we can go into the olfactory system and we can look at what part of the olfactory system is tuned to detect these different compounds. Mm -hmm. So we can sort of dissect the system by odors before we use dissected odors by the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this, this seems almost circular now because this only seems to make sense if you really know what these odors are about. So yes. how do you then ground this understanding? I mean, it doesn't mean that you have a full understanding of the chemical composition of what we call an odor, and that well, therefore you can interpret this? That's what's good about insects, because we know a lot of different things. So the first things that people started dissecting were, were the pheromones. So 1959, Butenant 
identified the first silk moth pheromone, bombi call, by using half a million females. Today we can use more or less one female and one male and get to, get to the chemical identity of this pheromone. And by then using that one, we can go into the receptor families and try to pull out which receptor is tuned to these different compounds. But also, as I said before, one of my favorites is to use deceptive systems. Because if you want to deceive someone and you want that to be a stable deception evolutionarily, you have to be really, really good because it's a constant red-green race. So if you're a flower and you don't want to pay your pollinator with nectar, which is pretty expensive, it's sugar, constant production, then you have to smell so good that the other guy, he cannot say no, he will come. So therefore, in many, many flowers, this has developed. We, we think of it sometimes as deception, but I found now, find now the more I look at it that if you really go into the literature, one of the biggest families, for instance, that we have of plants is orchids. And one third of the orchids are deceptive. So they have all invented ways of fooling insects to think that they are something else than they are. Mm-hmm. And, and now also in your own research here, you went through a number of stages, right? Because I think you, you, were, you were the first who, who highlighted this, this, this deception using, let's say, the smell of rotting meat. Mm. Right. This was sort of the entry point in this whole issue of, of deception. Yeah. And now that story has, has advanced quite a bit, also using very different kinds of technologies. So can you say something about that, that evolution of, of your own work in this area of deception? Well, what we actually started with was, was orchids. That was when we were still working on pheromones a lot and trying to understand the olfactory background to pheromones. And, and then we found these flowers that are really super mimicking bee pheromones to dupe bees to, to pollinate them. This was the co- collaboration with our Austrian colleagues. And, and that system is just as amazing as anything else. And it was a good starting point on this whole journey because these flowers, they dupe very intelligent insects, intelligent within uh, citation marks. But I mean, a male bee of this species, you, the female will only mate with the male once. And each female has a unique odor. So when the male has mated with this female, he learns the odor of that female and he will not go back to her because he knows that he will not be allowed to mate once more. So analogously, if every flower that were mimicking these odors smelled the same, the male would also learn the odor of that flower and would never go back. So what does the flower do? It mimics exactly the variation that you have between the females within these bees. And in this way, dupe the males to, to go back and, and to try how complex and is this, how, how complex is this variation uh, chemically? Well, it's a 10-compound pheromone. And, and uh, th- there are three or four of these that vary in proportions to, to a certain extent. And in this way, they, they get these uh, individual signatures. Mm-hmm. So that's more or less where we started. But then we got into these flowers that smell. Th- that's what we call sexual mimicry, right? But then we have the, the brood site mimicry. And that's where we got more and more interested. Because in the first one, you dupe males to go for sex. In the second one, you do females to go for a place to lay their eggs. And that's where we started on the, the Sardinian flowers that smell like rotten meat. And, and uh, we, first we observed the system and we saw that flesh-eating flies were attracted 
And what we found in the end was that these flowers mimic exactly the odor of rotting flesh to attract flies. But not only that, but they also uh, mimic the, the increased temperature of a rotting body. So, so the, the flower increases more than 15 degrees above ambient temperature to actually attract the flies into itself. So the odor is a long-range attractant, and then the temperature is the short-range attractant that makes the fly really go into it. Mm -hmm. So it's a multi, multi-sensory uh, deception. Okay, but then in this case, um, this is all assessed at the behavioral level. That's just basically sitting there and, and looking at this long enough and see see what the flies do or what the insects do. No, we could never have done that without having access to the olfactory system. Okay. We, we, first, we saw the behavior in the field, mm -hmm. but then we used the olfactory system of the bee, of the fly, and so on and so forth, to, to really pinpoint which odors are the active ones. So and we could never have done that without the, the biological mm -hmm. system as a detector. So which aspects of the system did you look at at that stage? This was the first stage, so we only looked at the, the sun potentials, which is called an electroantennogram. So you mm -hmm. hook up the antenna of, a, of, a, of an insect, and then you can re record like an EKG mm -hmm. or an EEG, but here we call it right. EAG. And on the antenna, essentially, you have the receptors that would be sensitive to, to different aspects yeah. of, of these molecules. That Just like in your nose, you have thousands of and millions of receptors on, a, on an insect antenna. An insect antenna is like an inside-out nose, you can mm -hmm. say. So there are other receptors sitting on the outside, constantly exposed to the surrounding right. air. But then, so, so how has that work advanced now? Because in some sense, also in your presentation, you try to show that you have now much more also electrophysiological access to the system to also more specifically pinpoint, let's say, the neuronal correlate, if you want, of the chemical structure of, of the specific volatile molecules that you might be interested in. Right? So what has been the, 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 the advance there? So EAGs have been the, the methodology of choice for many, and it's something that anyone can do. So it's today a, a general method in any, any lab working on insect semiochemicals. But then we have now progressed, so now we, we go in and make recordings from single neurons on the antenna, and then you gain sensitivity and specificity. Uh, but at the same time, of course, you lose the wide scope of, of the EAG. For, because in EAG, you will get peaks, more or less, of, for every compound that the antenna detects. But the question is then, do you get every, every compound? And, and that's probably not true. But if you go for single neurons, then you increase the sensitivity to such a degree that you really detect, more or less, everything that that single neuron detects. But uh, you also gain a lot of information on the system per se, because you gain information exactly on what a specific receptor is tuned to detecting. Mm -hmm. no, but, so in, but in this case, um, you are still stuck, if you want, at the level of single receptor neurons. Yes. So, so if the encoding of the compound, the overall compound, would require multiple receptor neurons, how, how can you access that information? Can you perform multiple recordings simultaneously on this system now? Uh, the, the, the first way to get at that is, of course, to make exhaustive studies of the whole antenna. And that's what we've actually been doing. So we, you record from hundreds of neurons consecutively, not at the same time, mm -hmm. but you probe and you run, and you probe and you run. 
And in this way, we have actually mapped out more or less the full system of, of an insect, mm -hmm. like the mosquitoes, for instance. We have really done very, very exhaustive screenings. But what I guess you're getting at is the next level where we can where we can open the brain of the insect and we can image the uh, first uh, relay center in the brain, which is the antenna lobe, where you have the glomeruli. And each glomerulus represents input from a certain receptor type. And there we can stimulate the antenna with the output of the gas chromatograph, and then we can see how different glomeruli light up in mm -hmm. the brain of Drosophila, for instance. And in several species, we have such a good map of the brain a constant map that is invariant, that we can map certain receptors to exactly the, the specific glomeruli, glomerulus that is uh, activated. Mm -hmm. so, so we know that if this glomerulus lights up, that means that uh, receptor 69A is activated mm -hmm. on the antenna. But now, if we, let's, let's take Drosophila as our example, right? So what's the, the odor space that these, these insects live in? How complex is this odor space? I think it is not as complex as ours. We have two, three hundred active receptors. They they are playing around with fifty, sixty. Okay. So I mean, it it it, it will be more reduced, but still they can encode an enormous amount of odors. Uh, and and uh, I mean, if if you look at uh, all these receptors and the combinatorial coding that you can get between them by getting a few or more activated and so on, still already by having 60, you can code a, uh, an immense amount of so in, So in terms of real, let's say, olfactory objects, how big would that space be for Drosophila? That's dozens, hundreds, thousands? No, come on. We, 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 we say that with our receptors, 200, 250 active ones, we can code an innumerable, innumerable number of odors. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's more or less the same answer for Drosophila. They can more or less code any odor that they are exposed to. Yeah, that's basically. in theory, right? If we say all possible combinations of receptor neurons are being used, then that's, that space would be very large. Hmm. But do we know behaviorally that also that, that's, that size of, of an of a encoding space is really being used? Or? Well, you're getting into very interesting, also evolutionary questions there, because, I mean, of course they have a, a specific repertoire of behaviorally relevant odors that mean something to them. And that's where, that's where we got an instep into this system by using our latest uh, devious flower as well, because we find that this flower is targeting different receptor populations that mean specific things to the fly. To the fly. So which, which flower is that? That's the Solomon's lily in the north mm -hmm. of Israel, mm -hmm. Aaron Palestinum. And this one dupes Drosophila to pollinate it without reward. And what we found is that it's really hitting three types of receptors uh, one type is saying that here is fermentation going on, one type says that it's uh, fruit going on here, this is fruit, and then the third one says that this is exactly your type of fruit that you like. So it's, it's really like a three-step rocket, and it's probably not mimicking one specific uh, substrate, mm -hmm. but it's collecting super attractive parts of several different stimuli to build up... Uh, right an image of something that the fly cannot say no to. No, because why, why am I asking, why I wanted us to agree a little bit on, on let's say, the, the, the magnitude of this, of this olfactory space, 
because this this should constrain a bit our questions around the, the, the antenna lobe itself. No? Because the, in the end, if we go from our receptor neurons through our antenna lobe, sort of in that interaction, the encoding of this this effective olfactory space should should happen. I would assume, right? So, so then what what does this what does the antenna lobe really contribute to this process? Because now you're saying, I can just look at these combinations of receptor responses, and actually with that already I can tell you what I, what I'm sensing out there in the world. So, what are these? What's the antenna lobe really adding to this process? Well, I think the antenna lobe adds valence. So. So we, we definitely can tell what the, the receptor neurons detect by looking at activations of glomeruli. But as you know, with Rosophila, we have the, the possibility to encode genetically our markers at any level. So we can, we can also we, we can encode one marker at the input part of the antenna lobe, and we can encode another marker at the output. Now we can compare these two activations, and then we see that there are definitely things happening in the antenna lobe. So if, for instance, we have done a very large screening of synthetic odors that we know are positive for the fly, so they will go for them in a bioassay. And then we have other odors that are, that are negative, so they will not, definitely not, they will go away from them. And what we find when we look at the input only, we don't find any correlation among patterns and the balance of the odors. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the output of the antenna lobe, we found very nice clustering of, of, uh, of uh, patterns that are attra encoding attractivity and patterns that are encoding uh, repulsion. Mm -hmm. So there, there is definitely something going on in there that is sharpening uh, the, the, the balance mm -hmm. of the message that is coming So not in. a discrimination then? So so in this case, you were, you were clustering data from the projection neurons or from the glomeruli, from optical imaging? What, what, what are we clustering Yes, exactly? we are doing optical imaging of both the input, mm -hmm. so the receptor neuron input into the glomeruli, and then we're doing uh, optical imaging of the projection neuron patterns. So mm -hmm. it's, it's in the same fly, you can, you can do both mm -hmm. by using different kinds of, of dives. Or you can do it in different flights, sure. of course. But, but I mean, you, you can clearly separate what is encoded in the input and what is going out of mm -hmm. the system. And then we know that in between there are these large uh, local interneurons that right. are shuffling messages mm -hmm. between, between mm -hmm. the glomeruli. So are, are you saying that then the glomeruli are just performing some transformation from an odor space into a balanced space? In some way, that's what we're seeing right now, mm -hmm. that, that there seems to be something going on that, that gives meaning to these mm -hmm. odors, in some but, way. But that, this is really very interesting, but also a bit, in some sense, counterintuitive, no? Because we have these projection neurons going to the mushroom bodies that, that many people have talked about as being, let's say, really very much involved in associative learning and especially also valence-driven learning. So how should we now compare this interpretation to this more standard view on this happening at the level of the mushroom bodies. No, but I think there is an initial sorting, and then this get, gets refined as they move up the system. Mm -hmm. And then you have the two pathways, you know. You have, if you know the insect system, you know that there is one pathway that goes from the antenna lobe to the mushroom body, and then it goes out into the lateral protocerebrum. But then we have one that totally bypasses the mushroom bodies and goes direct to the, to the lateral 
horn or the lateral proto-cerebral. Mm -hmm. and, and there we think that these, these two pathways are, pathways are mediating different things. One, one is taking the road over the, the uh, conscious mm -hmm. center of, of the, of the uh, insect brain and then going out to maybe the executive center. Mm -hmm. But one path is going directly to the executive. And I our feeling is that maybe this, maybe this is extremely important, especially for this reflexive pathway, mm -hmm. so that you need a sorting already here to tell the reflexive pathway mm -hmm. what is going on. Yeah, it would still be strange. I mean, I'm a bit confused now because, in some sense, it would mean that if if my output from my from my uh, antenna load processing is just if you want good or bad. Um, the balance of, of the stimuli I'm dealing with, and I lose my discrimination abilities. I cannot say anymore whether it was an apple or an orange. Y you would expect that also for, let's say, your behavior. This might be rather unspecific. Yeah, but I don't. I, that, that's uh, going too far, I think, ah, because, okay. because because it, it, it seems like you have clusters. So so within each cluster. Of, of there might be 15 glomeruli. Mm -hmm. So one saying apple, one saying orange, one saying pineapple, one saying banana. And, and I mean, but, but it seems like what we're finding is that these that say something good and, and sort of take part in the combinatorial <coughs> coding of something that is good, they mm -hmm. seem to be, be in some way clustered okay. and have become clustered during evolution. And the glomeruli maybe also 10 or 15 that right. are saying that something is bad, they have also become clustered in another way. And this makes it possible for us by a principal component analysis to say, to predict, mm -hmm. was this p pattern, was this activation pattern in the antenna lobe for uh, an attractive odor or was it for a repulsive odor? All right, so you're saying it's like a multidimensional code. It's something like on the one that will tell you what it is, like this is a banana and it's good, yeah. or this is some acid and it's bad, yeah, so it will yeah. tell you both. Yeah. All right, so, but why at the level of the antenna, so also from an evolutionary and behavioral perspective, it seems counterintuitive that already at this early processing stage, we start to label stimuli with respect to valence or not. Do you find this uh, intuitive? I, I don't find it so counterintuitive because it, it, we we think that the system has evolved by by glomeruli splitting and forming new ones. You know, you have the evolution of a receptor by a mutation of a previous existing one, and this adds a new glomerulus mm -hmm. in in the antenna. So this means that maybe you had a one detecting something a, a good fruit of some kind, but then you got a refinement that was evolutionary evolutionarily advantageous that the, they could detect another kind of fruit uh, that might be good to separate from the ones they, they knew already before. Mm -hmm. so, so, so then you got the glomerulus added, and this glomerulus will very likely be added close to the one that it was split off from. Mm -hmm. sort of. And in this way I see that these clusters have formed. I, I, I don't see that they really, they might not really form a functionally important uh, functionally important uh, character, but I find that they, they, it's evolutionarily interesting because because uh, these clusters have been built maybe from some protoglomerulus mm -hmm. that they, they all stem from. So there has been a few bad ones, a few good ones, mm -hmm. but then these have evolved and become more and more... Uh, yeah, but the way you elaborate. describe it now, 
Sounds a bit like I can keep on adding glomeruli until uh, my, my, my skull is filled up or my exoskeleton explodes because I have no more space. The well, look at the mouse. The case. mouse has 1,200, yeah. mm -hmm. but they are much, much smaller. So you can, you can, I think you can keep on adding glomeruli, mm -hmm. but, but I think there is also a, an end to when you need more. Yeah, that was this whole issue of the, of the effective stimulus space, right? Yeah. But then in Drosophila, uh, to what extent is this really genetically predefined? Or to what extent is it really open to the stimuli the animal is exposed to? What is predefined? The number of glomeruli that they will express. Oh, I, I, I think it, it is definitely predefined in the Drosophila that we, we work on today. I mean, we can go from from individual to individual to individual and it will be it will be constant and we and we know that glomerulus d it's always there mm -hmm. and we can find it right so so that that one is is pretty fine but then i'm also sure that there can be during evolution a mutation that is advantageous enough to be become fixed in the mm -hmm. population that creates a new a new receptor mm -hmm. but then we also know that receptors can pseudogenize and they become inactive. So, so I'm, I mean, the over evolutionary over evolutionary time, the the system can change. It's, mm -hmm. It can go backwards. It can go forwards. It can go left or right. So, so I'm 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 sure that things are happening there, but but they take a little too long for us to observe them. Right. What we can do is to go and compare species, and that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we can, for instance, look at all the twelve species of the Melanogaster group. And, and see, okay, the, we have, for instance, looked at what does diet change mean. So we have one species that have started eating only one single fruit out of the Seychelles. And this fruit smells very, very strongly of a pineapple odor, ethyl hexanoate, and of acids. And the acids make the other species more or less die when they eat it. And they, here we find a very, very strong effect on, on the olfactory system of the fly. So, so this fly has more or less sacrificed three or four other cells mm -hmm. that uh, that that uh, are active in in uh, in detecting the the sort of normal Drosophila melanogaster odors, and instead into those ancillae has put cells that only detect this new type of fruit. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it has zoomed in; it has totally zoomed in its its peripheral system towards this fruit mm -hmm. and at the same time it has increased the center of the brain the glomeruli that takes care of this input by 200 percent mm -hmm. so so it's it's really the first example we know this from sex detection in moths mm -hmm. that the male has increased the number of detecting units enormously and at the same time expanded his brain area taking care of female input enormously mm -hmm. But this was the first time we see such a thing happening with, when it comes to food mm -hmm. and diet. But then, is it, is it really the case that for these insects, just allocating more real estate to the processing of this signal increases their discrimination ability? Is that all it takes? I would say that it increases their detection ability. Mm -hmm. Because these flies, they are a bit weak and they have one competitor. And if they are not there first, they will be outcompeted by the other guy. Mm -hmm. So they're very dependent on detecting the fruit at an early stage of ripeness. 
and it's not, what I told you of the of this amplification by numbers is not the only thing because they have also boosted the sensitivity of each neuron by about a thousand times. Mm -hmm. So so they have they have maybe two hundred percent more neurons, and then each neuron is a thousand times more sensitive. Mm -hmm. So we get down to a detection limit that very very clearly competes with moth pheromone. Mm -hmm. detection, which is among the most sensitive we know from right. before. Mm -hmm. So we're down to picogram, mm -hmm. femtogram mm -hmm. of, of uh, compound being detected. And now, is, in terms of, of this, these detection thresholds, what's the sensitivity for Drosophila at the periphery for, the, for these kinds of uh, stimuli? And is, is that sensitivity also boosted in, by the processing that happens in these glomeruli in some way, or not, or do you don't know? What we know is that we go down to, to levels of moth pheromone communication, which where we can be playing with 10 molecules, which is really homeopathic mm -hmm. concentrations. Then, what we have observed in, in our uh, investigations before is that we sometimes see a boost in, in, uh, in amplification at the next level. And this boost we still cannot uh, explain. And we see sometimes a similar thing in Drosophila. So, so there, there is something going on after the receptor neuron has detected with its sensitivity. And then to the output levels of, mm -hmm. of the antenna lobe, we see an augmentation of, of sensitivity that we still cannot mm -hmm. really explain. Okay. So if you talk about things that cannot be explained, so would you claim that, that to a large extent you understand this system now? Could you really make that claim? Or no. Okay, so where are we with respect to our understanding of this system? Um, despite the very big uh, investigations, both from our lab, but even more from other labs that have come out lately on these local interneurons, we still don't understand mm -hmm. what they do, that mm -hmm. shuffle the message between glomeruli. Secondly, we lack one very basic thing, and that is how things are hooked up. And that's why, why we're now entering into very, very detailed electron microscopic investigations of single neurons, of single glomeruli, and trying to understand who, how, how are, are really receptor neurons hooked up to local neurons, how are hooked up to projection neurons. Mm -hmm. Are there things feeding back in the system? Uh, why do you need to know this? Because you can never is? understand the system unless you know how it's, how it's uh, wired. We, we don't even know the basics. No one has ever taken the, the trouble of looking at the very, very basics. There is one study of cockroaches mm -hmm. 10 years, 15 years ago, where, where Dagmar Malun in, in Jürgen Böck's lab actually took the trouble of looking at some of the connectivity of mm -hmm. the antenna lobe. Okay. But I mean, you, you have neurons that are coming in and you don't even know what they hook up to. Mm -hmm. We hypothesize that they might hook up to this neuron, or they mm -hmm. might hook up to that neuron, but we still don't know. Yeah, but look, on the other hand, you do have a lot of electrophysiology of this system. You know what these projection neurons that are reading out the glomeruli, how they are responding to different kinds of stimuli. Yeah, but you why do they respond like no, that? No, wait, wait, but you also know the dynamics of the glomeruli, so, so that means apparently something is missing from the pure physiological perspective. So what is missing there? What's the ambiguity exactly you're trying to resolve now? But there are still different schools. There is the, the Nobel Prize winner, Richard Axel School, who say that nothing is happening. Things mean? are coming in mm -hmm. and ah. things are going out, and it's the yeah. same. 
And then there is the more Gilles Laurent mm -hmm. uh, school that says that things are coming in, then they are modified, and then they go out. And here, in, in this case, I, I more agree with the Laurent school, mm -hmm. and I think more and more are doing that, that of course, things are happening in the antenna lobe. It's mm -hmm. not just a relay station. Mm -hmm. Why would we have hundreds and sometimes thousands of local neurons shuffling the message Mm -hmm. If you wouldn't need a, a modification in there. Well, you could have, a, let's say, a simple interpretation. Oh, we need some gain control because concentrations can vary and I should sort of regulate now the amplitude of my responses and that's it. So that has nothing to do with encoding this olfactory mm -hmm. space itself. Of course, you could have, but we don't see that. That's not what we observe. As, mm -hmm. as I told you, we, 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 we see sharpening of images. Mm -hmm. we, we see what we think is contrast enhancement where where one one odor can more or less turn off all the other glomeruli. Mm -hmm. it, it increases the response in one glomerulus enormously and it mm -hmm. depresses the, the response in all other glomeruli in the whole antenna lobe. Okay. So there are definitely things similar to the visual system mm -hmm. going on in there. All right, but then, so in, in terms of now how we encode the, 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 this, uh, this olfactory world, are you also there looking more at, let's say, the, the Laurent interpretation, like we have some kind of possible temporal coding coming out of the system? Or do you think you see more spatial kind of coding or more rate kind of coding? So what, what, where are you going there? Because in the end, of course, for the rest of the brain, what matters is not what the glomeruli do, it's what the projection nerves are telling the rest of the system, right? Uh, I, I think we have to look in both ways all the time. I definitely think there is a spatial code of some kind, but <clears throat> what, what that really means in the readout, I mean, what really means something is which projection neuron will get activated. And, and I mean, is, this, is the spatial code just a, a product of, of that we really have glomeruli in there and it's parcel in this way, so that what, what we what we choose to see as, as a spatial map is, is a product of, of the connectivity of the antenna lobe. I, I don't think that's so important. I think the main thing is that certain receptor neurons come into one location and the message of those receptor neurons are mainly picked up by projection neurons at the same location. Mm -hmm. So in that way you can say that you have some kind of spatial map. But then I, at the same time, I think it's really important to, to, to not forget the temporal aspects. But, but you, you also have to choose the way that you look at it. Um, I, I get very confused by some of the studies that have been done, and, and I still struggle to understand them, really. Mm -hmm. but, but, but For what reason? I mean, what's the confusing bit? <coughs> to, I, I mean, you, you, you get very, very intricate analysis going on of, of, the, of the oscillations going on, mm -hmm. for instance, in the antenna lobe and the mushroom body right. and so on. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm still not, I still haven't got my brain all mm -hmm. already with that. Right. But it also has been fairly, it's not that this is all clear cut, right? There's still quite some debate. Oh, there, there is a lot of debate. Whether this is the right yeah. way to, to, yeah. to, to yeah. look at it, yeah. yeah. But, but I, I also have this feeling that we have more to learn about, for instance, coincidence detection. Mm -hmm. I think that is one way that you could augment the sensitivity of the system in the way that we don't understand right now, so that we see the higher sensitivity at the second level than we could explain by theory mm -hmm. from, from just a mere convergence. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. And, and this, this, 
higher increase could be explained by, by for instance, cells going into, into synchrony on the antenna and then this synchrony being detected mm -hmm. in the antenna lobe. And that's exactly what we're trying to get at now by doing multiple recordings okay. from neurons on the antenna. So have you seen this kind of synchrony? The analysis, we, we did it uh, a few months back, okay. but the analysis to get at, mm -hmm. to get really, to, to, uh, to get, okay, here the stimulus reaches both of these neurons exactly at this millisecond, and then go into mm -hmm. the analysis and say that, okay, after 10 milliseconds, they start spiking mm -hmm. together. Right. That takes some time. Okay. So now to, so, so we'll talk about the evolution here, right? Certainly in this, this meeting. And it was sort of interesting, maybe also ironic, that, that you said, well, olfaction is a bit like the visual system. But, but from an evolutionary perspective, you could also make the argument that actually the visual system is a bit like the olfactory system. And, and so, so where, where do you stand on that issue? Do, do you see really that, that the olfactory system is like a proto-sensory system whose principles have been generalized towards other modalities? Or what, what's your take on that? Well, I, I think all, all these sensory systems are created from cilia. And, and cilia were there from the beginning. We have cilia in different forms on, on, all, on all organisms. And as Heather Eisen was saying in her talk here at the conference, probably chemoreception and mechanoreception were the two, two first sensory systems. Mm -hmm. And that if we then compare Probably the, the, the cilia of the visual system might have occurred from the, the mechanosensories and cilia in some way, and you have the, got the rhodopsin integrated and so mm -hmm. on. So I think it's very hard to, to talk about a proto-sense of, of some way. Uh, I, I, I find the... Yeah, this is interesting because you're sidestepping the issue a bit by, by focusing so much at the sensory periphery, right? You could also still argue that, let's say, the processing that has been performed, that is being performed by the antenna lobe, combined with their projection neurons, and maybe a little bit uh, downstream from that, provides, let's say, the, the proto-processing principles of any sensory modality, right? irrespective of how the periphery gets you the specific signals. Would you buy that? Also, that you would not buy necessarily. Uh, we, we, I mean, I mean, you can compare it. If you look at audition, hearing, that, that, then you have this uh, that you have certain frequencies being taken part, taken care of in certain barrels in mm -hmm. our auditory cortex and so. On. So I think that this parcellation definitely occurs mm -hmm. in different sensory systems. On the other hand. The, the glomerulus formation we see all over the place. From, from, we, we, uh, we see some, some organisms that have an agglomerular input from receptor neurons, but they, I see them as the exception. Mm -hmm. I don't agree with, uh, with some of the, what we heard earlier here at the conference, that, that there are many, many. I think mm -hmm. there are a few where we don't see this. But take an antenna and move it to the place of a leg of a fly, and glomeruli will be formed where, where the nerves hit the, the, mm -hmm. the nervous system. So, mm -hmm. I mean, with olfactory receptor neurons have the capability of forming glomeruli mm -hmm. where they hit the olfactory system in more or less any organism. Right. So, this seems to be a general principle that has evolved mm -hmm. probably independently mm -hmm. in several different uh, lineages during evolutionary okay. time. So I think that, that, that is a very basic mm -hmm. way of, of organizing chemo detection. But then if you look at how visual 
then you don't see this this kind of architecture. Well, but still, you would have some patterns of convergence and divergence that are, especially convergence initially, that that are regulated in some form. So I might you might speculate to say like, well, you know, the the the, the formation of the glomerulus is like your proto-receptive field. And other sensory modalities who threw that threw in, let's say, a thalamus, an intermediate processing stage, mm -hmm. just developed a more complicated form of, of a glomerulus. But now it became, really became an, a, a mechanism to define more complex receptive fields. I mean, I'm just I'm just sucking this out of my thumb right now, but you could tell a story along these lines that you could try to defend. But that's not necessarily one you would you would buy right now. You would really see the separate principles for separate modalities. Yes, basically, but at the same time, I agree that, that, that you can definitely have receptive fields and that it gets organized, of course. Mm -hmm. Organization is needed for sensory detection. Right. But I don't see direct parallels when mm -hmm. I look at the olfactory system and the visual system, mm -hmm. for instance. So, so the, I, I, I think more, more, more science is needed before we can say that. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of evolution going on since they, since they were formed. Yeah, that, that, that's what you guys tell me. So now, um, so another thing you're doing here on the island is to look at specific species of crabs, or a particular one, the rubber, rubber crab, right? So, so why is that really? How is this helping us to understand the olfactory system? Well, here we are really interested in understanding how does the sensory system adapt during evolutionary time to go from detection in water to detection in air. Mm -hmm. And this has happened during the last five million years. It's a pretty fast process. And we know also interesting new facts about different kinds of receptors detecting different kinds of stimuli. And we know that these, the old, evolutionarily probably old ionotropic receptors are, are very active in detecting waterborne compounds and so on. So what we're trying to look at is basically all the way from the antenna into the brain, what has happened to these guys. And it's, it's not only in these species, but then we're comparing to other species. And what we find really interesting is that different species of crustaceans have taken totally di different evolutionary pathways. So out of the five lineages that went on to land, we have chosen mainly two to look at, and that's the, the hermit crabs and the isopods, the wood lice. And they have taken diametrically different pathways. Mm -hmm. So the, the hermit crabs, they have expanded the brain area that take care of olfactory input to occupy almost 50% of their brain. While isopods have totally decreased almost to zero mm -hmm. the part of their brain that takes part of take care of olfactory input. So I find this very interesting. Why, why, why do two different types of the same type of animal, crustacean basically, when they go on to land, go in so diametrically mm -hmm. different evolutionary directions. Right. And that's what we're trying to understand. And mm -hmm. to understand it, we do, we have, we are studying the antenna, we're studying all the receptor setups. So far we have only found gustatory receptors and ionotropic receptors. We cannot find our type of, mm -hmm. of olfactor or the insect type. Right. And at the same time, we're doing the brain anatomy. We're looking at, at how it's built, uh, how things project, how the different centers are constructed, 
comparing between isopods and crustaceans and so on, and and the hermits and so on. So, but we were in the middle of that project. Mm-hmm. But evolutionarily, I find it extremely interesting mm-hmm. because we we have sort of a an experiment that has been going on during the last five million years. Right. But now it's, it's, it seems a bit counterintuitive, right? Because you, aren't you sort of swimming against the, the current now? Because, you know, we have preparations like Drosophila, like the mouse, which are in some sense becoming now the standard preparations because we know so much about them. And we have this molecular access to them that they can become highly controlled experimental preparations. And now, now you come and you, you find some, some really very odd crab species to start to look at about which we know very little. So isn't that a high-risk uh, operation? Of course, but at the same time, I think it's highly dangerous to get stuck only in the model species. So so th- we should use the model species to the utmost, and I really like working on Drosophila, but at the same time, of course, we need the comparison with other systems. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we get extremely narrow in our view of the world. And we get totally drosophila-centric or mm-hmm. musocentric or what you, you would say. And, and I mean, we, we need comparison. And to understand evolution specifically, you can never understand evolution only by looking at drosophila melanogaster, an mm-hmm. animal that has been totally associated with humans during the last 15,000 or 25,000 mm-hmm. years. Right. So, so it, it's, it's really, really needed that, that we also keep our eyes open, and that, that's what I really like to do. I, I like to use the, the, the model system, but I also really like to go outside of them mm-hmm. and to try to understand what has really gone on in, in nature. Right. So then, how many years will it take for us to understand this crap now? Oh, they, you know, when you start that on a new system like this one, First, you have to nail down the, the, the ecology of the species to try to understand what they are doing. And what you should basically do is just to sit down in your ass for one year and watch the crab. Mm-hmm. But we don't have time to do that, most of us. So Are you good in this? We, I now have one postdoc on the island, and she's doing massive marking of the crabs, and we're really trying to get the impression of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we're marking them with GPS uh, loggers and so on to try to understand their movements and basically how they interact. But all of this is supposed to form the base for 